Hello, and welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. And we talk a lot about sort of how our relational patterns show up in our present day moment, right? In our triggers and the way that we relate now. And obviously that's imperative and important because the choices we make today determine the relational success, success being defined more in depth and intimacy rather than longevity. If you have depth and intimacy, it usually facilitates longevity and expansion and growing together because there's communication about the growth and the alignment and also the recognition that sometimes relationships need to close and that's actually the loving thing to do, that the journey together has gone as far as it was meant to and the learning and lesson sometimes is the leaving. And I say all this just to really want to be mindful of like when we're thinking about our relational patterns in the day-to-day relating to our parents, our children, our partners, our friends, our, you know, where we really see the magnifying glass of the things we're challenged with and the invitations to our triggers to to choose new behaviors, constructive behaviors, not destructive behaviors. And, and sometimes destructive being, which sounds like a dramatic word, can actually mean just ones that block us from being close to people that sabotage intimacy and closeness and love. And man, I I have experienced that in my life so many times within my own self, you know, the, the, what is seemingly my relational choices or who I'm just attracted to or whatever it is, is always feeding uh, some sort of fear, like as in it's either rewounding me or protecting me from being wounded, but then inevitably really never feeling fulfilled and that I'm getting depth. And it's, and it might manifest as the story, oh, there's just no people out there for me, or I just haven't met anyone, or there's no, right? It, it starts to go in these beliefs uh, as opposed to we actually don't want to see it. So we can't see it because we don't want to, because if we saw it, we might have to choose it. We might have to face fears and pain that we don't want to face. And so in that sort of construct of wanting to explore how it shows up today, there's also a really imperative part of exploring where it might have come from that might not even be your present life. In, and I don't mean lifetime, uh, as in like you being you in this lifetime, in this manifestation or, or expression of you in the human form. Although I do love the idea of getting into that subject. I, I mean in the the inherited pattern way. I'm so excited for the episode today because we're going to explore inherited trauma. We're going to explore how that shows up. We've got the brilliant Dr. Marielle Bouquet, who is just an incredible teacher, and she's a master in this area. So I'm so excited to bring her into your world and for you to meet her and for her to offer a window into a perspective of how to see what shows up in your life today and and what that might look like. To give you an idea of Dr. Marielle Bouquet, uh, she has this quote on her website, which is, our humanity comes in layers, which is why healing must be multidimensional. I love that because there's so much complexity to us and, and we often try to simplify it through things like a book or talk therapy. And, and all those things can obviously be highly effective and have a role we're so multi-layered and complex that sometimes that isn't the key that unlocks the awareness or the vault of 
of mysteries and beautiful, uh, the beautiful sort of mess that that is within that. And so Dr. Bouquet is a holistic psychologist, an intergenerational trauma expert. She's also a sound bath meditation healer. And I'm not sure if you've ever done a sound bath, but they are the most beautiful, amazing. They're incredibly, like just what they unlock in the body and the meditation, the tones, they're just incredible. So I'm absolutely pumped for you to experience today's episode. And before we jump into that, if this resonates with you, definitely share it. And because, I mean, it could be the key that unlocks someone else's mystery. Someone else's like puts the pieces together in the puzzle and they're like, damn, that's where that comes from. Because we're often looking for the evidence in this lifetime, as in the things that touched us within our generation, our parents, but we're not looking up the family tree and seeing the patterns there. So a lot of the things we're healing today are not actually ours. They're from someone else's patterns. And so I'm so pumped for you to hear this. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to it. That is so helpful so that you don't miss an episode, but it also allows it to sort of get in more people's ears and give it a five-star review and a written review. Those are my asks, please. That is so helpful for me. And without further ado, here is Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I am excited today to have Dr. Marielle Bouquet, who's a licensed psychologist, holistic mental health expert, and a sound bath healer. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad we're finally in conversation with one another. Finally got you on here because I wanted to impart your wisdom. I, I, you know, I think that aspect of holistic in the conversation about that psychological approach. I'm I'm curious what drew you to that, that multidimensional sort of aspect of looking at psychological healing or healing in general. Yeah, you know, like I think it was like part professional, part personal, right? Like definitely on the professional end, you know, being someone that is a therapist and you're working day in and day out, you know, going through session through session and you're realizing that you're doing something in the work, right? Like you're seeing some change, but it feels very limited has been my perspective for such a long time. And I couldn't really capture like what was going on that felt like it was producing that limitation. And so for me, you know, eventually when I came to really embracing a lot of the aspects of what for me personally meant mental health, mental wellness, and just full embodiment of my global wellness, I started realizing, okay, this there is something to this. There's something that that feels right about doing more than just the cognitive, emotional work within a therapeutic practice that needs to be brought into a therapeutic space. And so, you know, I started seeing I, a lot of the individuals that I work with have some sort of history around trauma and very specifically with those individuals, I, I started thinking more concretely about what can holistic methods look like for people that have these experiences so that every aspect of how they've internalized those experiences around the trauma uh, can can also be have a, a moment of healing. Wow. And in that, so when I hear you talk about like going from the cognitive and exploring that work with your clients and then 
Was it your own personal experience of healing in other modalities that you're like, wait, I got to bring these, like, as you discovered that they were there, was it through just your own experience that you thought I need to bring this in? Yeah, I mean, it it was a little bit of like what was driven by the scientific world that I then started like also reproducing in my own life, right? Like when I started learning about the, you know, gut microbiome and the ways in which we have like an enormity neurotransmitters within the gut and that many of those coincide with mood or mood-based disorders that, you know, when I started catering to my own gut because my own health mattered to me. I started realizing that, you know, we have these individuals that are stuck in chronic experiences of mental unwellness. And why is it that we're not identifying ways in which we could cater to the millions of, you know, um, microbiomes that exist within their body, right? And and the millions of, you know, gut bacteria that, that are also there to help protect them from plummeting mood-wise, right? Like I, I started wondering about that. Why are we not talking about this more in the field of mental health? And how can I start one, you know, learning and getting trained more around this area so that I can then start incorporating it from a holistic perspective into my practice? Well, and it's, it seems so logical, you know, when we think about, I used to work in gastroenterology. And when I worked in gastroenterology, this was about, man, it was probably about 10 years ago. And there was not a sp- a peep about the microbiome, but the microbiome was certainly making its way into sort of the holistic health world. And it's still not a main form of conversation in there. And what I find fascinating about that is like, as untraditional, quote unquote, sort of idea of like the discussion of the microbiome, even from like a bio, biological perspective of like the pathology of, let's say, um, like small intestinal, like SIBO, right? Like small intestinal bowel overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth, that's right. Or like irritable bowel syndrome, like the pathology of those things being correlated to like microbiome, but also that we forget that they're correlated to emotional things. Like It's interesting to me that there hasn't been till books like Molecules of Emotion was written, but even that is not a mainstay read for people who work in the psychological world. So it's kind of fascinating to think that it makes such logical sense that we should be making these bridges between these two things. And so when you started that work, what was the reception like from a colleague perspective and then from a client perspective? I'm curious. From the collegiate world was, I think, less receptive as I saw it than individuals that were either my identified clients or people that I just came in contact with either through social media or, um, you know, people that are just in my personal world that I started, you know, kind of orienting around this, this idea. It seemed as though the people were looking for something like this, right. but clinicians were hesitant because as a field, we're still so very married to the traditional and foundational ways of doing this work and are, you know, are very cautious, I would say, about anything that doesn't fit the mold. So the reception is a little bit more warm with the general public than it is, I'd say, with the clinical world, for sure. Which is really fascinating. It shows you how often we can get so ingrained in the academia. And, you know, when I think about even in the medical world, as soon as a medical physician or a nurse or someone like that 
experiences that Western medicine cannot provide them the thing that they need or they have to explore it and they find healing in some other aspect, the whole like worldview gets just shattered and then they see that they need to bring, I mean, insert functional medicine, you know, that we can bring all these things into the healing process. And it's so interesting that because one model, and I'd say this is just more true in the traditional models, Western medicine, that if it doesn't work, then that's, I'm sorry, that's it. And, and what you're inviting and, and practicing is actually that's not, that's just a small piece of this very complex part of that you are, that you are this complex, beautiful system and organism that requires a complex multi-dimensional view. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, you know, it kind of just to add my own opinion and perspective to, you know, psychology in and of itself and the skepticism that lies within. I think, you know, psychology is a very new science, right? It's a new field relative to medicine, right? Globally medicine. And, you know, because it's also considered to be like a soft science, a social science, right? Like there is a lot, you know, us having to protect our world, right? Our our practice, our scientific methods from scrutiny from the the harder sciences, right? And so, of course, you know, we're going to be skeptical about like disrupting what we've built in this short amount of time that we've had psychology. And the thing about that is, is that, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't leave room for integrating methods of healing that have existed for centuries upon centuries. Like, long well before you know psychology and well before a lot of you know the real concrete formation of some of the harder sciences and yeah i think you know it offers an opportunity also right for that there to be that that level of integration that could be so profoundly healing for people well and even that idea that if it can't be measured it doesn't exist you know continues to, which is, of course, the challenge of social sciences and studying them is it's hard to, much of it is so self-reported, much of it is subjective. And social sciences are hard to study from that perspective, you know, and, and there's so many confounding factors that influence outcomes. But that, you know, that's true of a lot of science. But it's interesting how it just keeps perpetuating this idea that, you know, I think of the, one of the lines from Ram Das is that we made the professor, the high priestess, And really that we sort of praise the intellectual mind and not recognizing. I was listening to Wade Davis, who's an anthropologist recently, and he said something so eloquent of like, every culture looks at other cultures as a failure to be them. And that we we send this message that we went from being savages to being civilized. And he said, but in that civilization of the civilized, we couldn't be further from the earth. And I thought that's so true, this paradigm of hierarchy of how we look at things as opposed to what you're inviting is this holistic view that there is no hierarchy, that that to look at things that are thousands of years old and be like, wait, they knew? They yeah. knew all along. <laughs> it, yeah. it challenges the arrogance of the sort of, I guess, like Western science, you know, or science in general, it challenges that arrogance that, wait, maybe we don't know better. Maybe a pill doesn't cure that. Maybe a sound bath can, or maybe what your other work, which I wanted to talk more about, of like looking at intergenerational trauma can actually give us a window to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there, there are so many ways in which, you know, we, we embody this um, elitism, right? You know, 
in the Western world. And I, I guess I, it, it doesn't just kind of happen in the Western world. It, it can be more of a global, you know, just way of orienting oneself around, you know, one's general culture, including one's, you know, science culture, or medicinal culture. And, you know, us being Westerners per se, right? Like we get that, we get this perspective. However, I wonder truly, you know, even from a personal standpoint, but but also from the perspective of being a clinician, even when I was a starting clinician, a person that was in her course of training, had I had that information readily available, I wonder what this work could have looked like from the very beginning, rather than having stumbled upon it by happenstance, you know, and, and through just like lucky chance. Because I did come across a number of individuals that I worked with at the beginning stages of my training with whom I felt completely stuck and with whom I eventually had to terminate services. And I never quite found the recipe. And I think it could have been this. And I feel so saddened by the fact that they weren't offered an opportunity for something different that, you know, perhaps they could have invited in as something that would have really had a profound effect in their lives. And so I wonder how many more of those instances have happened to all of us, right? And, and I think that's an unfortunate piece. And yeah, the intergenerational trauma, you know, lens, it, it is a lens that derives hard science. And I think it, 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 you know, hard science gives it credibility. And, you know, the field of epigenetics is definitely helping us in, in really kind of having a sound understanding of at least the biological mechanisms of trauma as through the lineage and through the generation. And that I think makes it more inviting for folks because we still are, you know, more inviting. We're inviting to something that feels tangible. However, intergenerational trauma allows us to also bring in the fullness of people's experiences and the ways in which globally, you know, holistic methods can be integrated within the practice itself because it also invites in, or I also invite in, in my general practice around intergenerational trauma, uh, intergenerational resilience, some of the ways in which, you know, through the generations we receive messages and practices, indigenous-based practices and ancestral practices that are also helpful to have in day-to-day life and sometimes ritualistic manner that can be, you know, can really tie us back to our roots and, and help us feel grounded and connected, which is one aspect of, of the holistic methods of mental health. It's tapping into that spiritual realm of who we are. Yeah, which the spiritual can be, you know, other than the exploration of something like depth psychology, which really does look at that window of there's something greater in there. And there seems to be a need for humans, you know, to to deal with the dissonance of mortality. You know, it seems to be a search that we've always been on. And and look at how we handle the fear of mortality as we buy more toilet paper or we get, you know, we get a little freaked out. And that makes a lot of sense because, but when you claim to, when you sort of turn towards the impermanence of, of being human and find something greater in that abyss, in that sort of fearful space, it seems like a lot of answers can be found there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's, a, you know, it drives away from the limitations that we've been socialized to mm. embody. Do you mean by that is that it, it it sort of demands that we turn away from the limitations that we've been... Like, I guess maybe that's not the right word, but it demands that we let go 
or release the limitations that we were only taught about, you know? And I think that's what's so fascinating is like, as soon as you wake up to the fact that you're participating in this sort of unconscious messaging that has told you the beliefs that you're to hold and the limitations you're to have, and this is what relationships should look like, and you shouldn't have a voice, you should have a voice, you know, all the things. That as soon as you wake up to the fact that you've been programmed to to act in the way you act or or be the way you are, that is freedom. Like, because now you can choose, you know, because of course we get taught things that are helpful and we get taught things that are not helpful. And you get to release yourself for limitations that, I mean, I guess on an unconscious level, keep us safe. Is that fair? I mean, why do you think we hold on to those limitations that are so limiting, even just like the idea of traditional psychological interventions, traditional medical interventions? And not to say there's anything wrong with those things. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think I I honor, you know, the practices of many folks that I know and that I do not know, right? You know, and, and there has been an enormous amount of healing that has, you know, surfaced traditional practice, right? And in part, you know, in, in my opinion, I do believe that safety is the undercurrent of it all, right? You know, like I think um, more, if we can think more like kind of within society as a whole, right? And and just navigate a little bit away from the field of psychology, which we can go back to, like we create standardizations and norms and like all kinds of ways of orienting a society to create also safety, right? Apart from other things. And I think, you know, safety just being a prominent factor and, and undercurrent of like why we create these kinds of practices and hold on to them. And I think, you know, then psychology as an extension, you know, just kind of also ad- adheres to that, you know, in an unconscious way, you know, we, we want stability, safety, like all the things that the human mind wants, we're just gravitating towards in, you know, when it comes to this conversation as well. Yeah, it seems like often we, uh, we conflate safety with certainty, you know, and when I think about something like intergenerational trauma, which I was introduced to maybe three years ago, and I remember thinking like, what? Wait, what? Like, first, yeah, that makes total sense. And how the hell did I not know about this? And second, like, oh my God, it makes so much more sense when, you know, so I sort of looked at like my version of intergenerational exploration would have been like, okay, draw your family tree, look at the relational patterns, but not to the level of depth that and detail that, oh my gosh, actually doing something like a family constellation can provide. So first, maybe because we've sort of touched on the words, could would you be able to define for uh, the person listening for me to what what is intergenerational trauma like w- to conceptualize it, and then we can explore like how do you begin to even touch the edges of that because that sounds really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, intergenerational trauma globally, right? As a as a, as a term, really gets at the ways in which trauma is passed down through a person's lineage, through a person's community. And really, it's the type of trauma that finds itself at the intersection of nature and nurture. And the, the, the nature side is really, you know, just the biology of it all. And it centers on the ways in which our gene expressions 
reflect the levels of trauma, the levels of stress by way of trauma that we undergo on an ongoing basis through life. And when a person is somebody that has been undergoing trauma, especially the chronic kind, so chronic PTSD, most namely because they have had a traumatic experience and it just has been continuous and ongoing, or the stress that they experience has been ongoing as a result of that, that initial trauma or singular trauma, you know, then there is a genetic re-expression that happens within a person's body that then reflects the levels of stress that a person undergoes. And it, it's kind of a hormonal kind of re-expression. And so that's the nature side of it. And then the nurture side is kind of everything that comes after, you know, a baby leaves the womb, right? Because when a baby is in the womb, they are inheriting the genes both parents, including the genes that have been re-expressed that are now a reflection of how much stress is flowing through the body. And that re-expression makes it so that the baby is now emotionally vulnerable to stress. However, upon entering the world, right now you have this immensity stress that is kind of just everywhere, right? And an emotional vulnerability to stress. And as we know it, trauma is basically the experiences of high stress and low coping or not enough coping to supersede the stress. And if you have an an emotional vulnerability that already sets you at a place where you're always on high stress in relation to circumstances of the world, and then you have a lot of, you know, stresses going on, then it makes it so that, you know, it's more likely for you to uh, have the experience of trauma and trauma that's passed down. Okay. So if I get this correctly, the, (laughs) I hope I do this well. On the one side, we have the way that the environment influences. And, and in real time, if I understand you correctly, that changes our genetic expression. And that's the idea of epigenetics, right? That like That's right, yeah. So stress on the body, but also does like joy on the body and like love on the body and all those things also change the genetic expression sort of in real time. Yeah, well, we're learning more about like resilience and resilience factors, right? Um, and and also, of course, you know, some of the ways in which we elicit just relaxation methods that promote homeostasis or balance within the central nervous system, like like with mindfulness meditation. So we're learning that all of these things are also contributants, right, to the ways in which our bodies morph, whether it's the brain or it's the genetic expressions that we have. And so all of that is included in in the mix. So we do have an enormous amount of, yeah, of, of positive traits, obviously, that also come with, you know, with us while, you know, while we're kind of forming in that first cellular phase, if you may. So it sounds like you can, based on, and I think I remember reading research on this, that that just by lifestyle changes, you can dramatically ex- change the expression of your genetics. And just like how a positive lifestyle change can positively influence a negative event, maybe negative is the wrong word, but like an unexpected traumatic event or even lifestyle events, like the way you eat, the lack of exercise, those can all influence it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. They okay. all play a part. And then if you're in utero and you were saying that the, the, the mothers, but also both parents, epigenetics, so like the sperm and the egg, both in the container create, it's like birds and the bees. So you're watching <laughs> Netflix and your parents are watching Netflix and you end up with 
their genetic expression at the time, I guess, so to speak. And then in utero, the environment that the baby is in affects the baby's stress hormones to prepare for external world. And then the external world, if they were already prepared for a highly stressful external world, it can sort of set them up to be easily traumatized. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. So it can happen in like, you know, all three of those levels where both parents, you know, can come in with that genetic re-expression and and that can contribute to that emotional vulnerability. The in utero environment, as we all know, is very sensitive to maternal stress and and the hormones that stress-based hormones, namely that a mother, you know, is experiencing and, and, and representing in, in her own body based on, you know, what's going on for her emotionally. And then obviously, you know, once we hit the world, like it's like there's a whole world out there, right? And, <laughs> yeah, 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 um, right. <laughs> don't watch so the much. news as a baby or an adult. <laughs> <laughs> right. right, no news ever. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> a, though. A nicer, nicer way to be and, and experience the world for sure. But yeah, you know, like there's there's so many ways in which we can experience a vulnerability. And sometimes people get really bogged down by this idea. Like, well, you know, like why even try? Like I'm kind of, you know, already everything's predetermined for me. I'm kind of destined for, you know, just having a high stress life, but not quite, which is why I always find it really important to, you know, make sure that we give the other side of this, right? That resilience factors and and that the ways in which we process stress from a health promoting place is is also something that not only can be, you know, just passed down in the sense that there are ways in which, you know, the the body you know regenerates itself and it, that's pre-programmed into our genes, but that also, you know, a, a lot of that is modeled, you know, once we hit the world, right? If we if we have parents that are meditating and they're modeling that for us as kids and we're seeing the ways in which we can engage in high stress situations and and yet still feel balanced that's also something that can help us to you know to to learn to regulate and and we can lose sight of the fact that that's also there I certainly did not witness my parents meditating as a child you know I can't imagine you know like I have another friend who's like yeah my parents brought us to different personal growth people. And I'm like, what percentage of the population had that, you know? Right, right. You know, it can't be that many. Right. But but with that said, I'm sure there were lots of kids who witnessed, I'm from the more, like I have an Irish parent who's from Dublin, who's from Ireland, and my dad's from Canada. They There's not a cultural, not a recent cultural experience of meditation you know, and I went to Catholic school, like no one in Catholic school was like, meditate, because you might meet Christ. No, there was none of that. It was like, listen, you believe and that's the end of it. And you're going to be a good person. And that's it. So what you're saying is that we can both inherit, obviously, a high stress experience, we can also we experience we inherit resilience, we inherit practices that can help us. And you were saying that when you're working with clients, you'll often bring in historical practices. So can you tell us more like about how that looks, like what that might look like? Absolutely. So the more prominent practice that I've been bringing in has been sound medicine. And the one that I utilize most has been, you know, uh, sound bath meditations. 
So that has been one of the ways in which I have integrated something that is indigenous in that it it holds, you know, indigenous roots in the Far East. And sound ba- sound meditation in and of itself is something that's a bit more global. It just looks differently place to place. However, it has been something that has I've brought in with an enormous amount of intention and has been well received within my practice. But there have been also, you know, other aspects of, of healing, like it's some of the natural roots that we know that helpful in establishing a healthy gut have been a part of my practice as well. Like I have a running list of all of the different supplements that are health promoting frontal health perspective that, you know, I integrate into the practice and, and, and orient people around and, and, and help, you know, to establish like lifestyle choices around those as well in order for people to also have those practices integrated within the work and and do check-ins about them. We, you know, we dialogue about how can this safely be integrated into a person's life and have conversations with the individuals that are prescribers. If I'm working with a prescriber as a part of my clinical team and, you know, ensure that whatever, whatever supplements, you know, we're integrating into the holistic practice aren't contraindicated with medications that are being prescribed you know like it's a whole like a whole you know effort of like just bringing in what has been healing herbs for generations what has been healing sounds for generations right um bringing in ancestral work and sometimes it can take even like a more modern approach i take a more modern approach to it or it can look more modern like and you know people have really gravitated towards journaling lately so i do some journaling sequences that are tailored to connecting to ancestors and specifically ancestors within the lineage that also had embodied some elements of trauma and can have not only a word, you know, a narrative to share with us, but also, you know, some wisdom, resilience-based wisdom to share as well, right? So it's just, it, it looks so variable person to person, but the more that I can learn, you know, about what has been there before psychology, what has been there before modern medicine, the more that I I get curious and I want to integrate into my practice in a way that is ethical and helpful and healing. So when you look at someone who's coming in and they're, well, where would you start with exploration of where they're at? And then through that trauma, that inherited trauma lens, what would that exploration begin to look like? You know, it's fascinating because a lot of people actually come to me with some of that already in mind, right? Like just understanding that, (laughs) that some of the work I do is, you know, it's, it's around this area. So that's kind of a gift, right? It definitely makes it, you know, more streamlined in that we know what we're working on at the outset of our work together. However, very often I start picking up the storyline that a person shares with me that references to similar experiences happening in a generation prior to like, you know, well, my mother was, you know, also someone that suffered abuse and, you know, she was pervasively neglected as a child. Like her mother didn't show any emotion and actually, you know, enforce like corporal punishment and those kinds of things. Right. And so 
grandmother had her own version of that towards me. And, you know, and so we start seeing that, oh, it didn't just start with you. And kind of the Mark Woolen's book, right? It didn't start with you. It really didn't, right? Like it, it started before you. And I wonder what happened within grandma's world, right? That made it so that she elicited violence upon her child. We also have to start looking at that, right? And and then the connections start building very organically. And and so, you know, it offers me an opportunity to start creating a narrative tree that really embodies all the different trauma-based dynamics that have existed in the family for generations and to really start formalizing a more structured knowledge around that and and then you know start doing some of the healing work once we get a better idea of how has trauma passed itself down you know your your family lineage so when you look at that narrative based tree i like that term so you're if you're looking at that you're looking at the narrative that perhaps someone might be saying to themselves or the narrative of the culture of the family or the narrative. Do you mean more of the individual or can it be the narrative of the family or, and then as you look, are you beginning to see who else might've identified with that or had the same thought or had the same experience? I just want to make sure I'm getting that right. Yeah. And even the same, you know, so getting into the same kinds of thoughts and emotions that were exhibited by every person, including yourself within the family lineage but also getting a sense of how how were behaviors represented that were trauma-based behaviors, right? How was it that a person may have exhibited like hypervigilance, right? And, and perceived everything as a threat and maybe like elicited certain behaviors around the home or the family to, you know, protect the family or themselves to an extent that wasn't warranted. And perhaps those were modeled behaviors that then the person that I'm working with would have inherited, right? Like I saw that model that the world was perceived as unsafe as per my mother. And so that's how I saw the world and that's how I see it now, right? And so really getting a sense of what were some of the messages, what were some of the behaviors, what were some of the emotions and how did, how did, did emotion get represented in the household, right? Was there high levels of irritability that were uncontrollable and were marked by high levels of stress, which, you know, can we connect that to if, if it's lifelong to a person just embodying trauma and never knowing it or never really kind of knowing how to deal with it. So we start building all these connections kind of like branches, right? And just like building and building and building. And so we get a, as best as possible of a representation how trauma was reflected within the family unit as we can. So you begin to build sort of a map, a map, so to speak. Uh, and, and I imagine you begin to see the connections all over the damn place, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and is your clients in general, would the client's experience of that be like perhaps like feeling witnessed or feeling an understanding that allows it to not feel as heavy? Is that the, like where there's like, oh, I get it. It's not mine. Like, is that sort of mm -hmm. the, what, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a lot of I feel seen and this makes sense. There's a lot of compassion for self and compassion for those that came before them, which is a really hard piece about trauma that perhaps isn't captured as much within other trauma approaches for us to be able to, to look at a parent and say, wow, they were, if they felt like I felt, they weren't feeling too good, right? And they didn't know what to do and how to channel all of that feeling and 
you know, perhaps a part of me can hold compassion for how much they had to carry throughout a lifetime, right? And so some of that is also in there, which is a unique and, and sometimes very complicated process for most people. Yeah, I would imagine that that you'd be sort of stuck in this paradox of like, I'm angry and I have understanding for why that might have happened, which is not permission or tolerance for what happened, but rather compassion and understanding of where it was sourced from. Ooh, that's a complexity for a human to hold that we all have to learn to hold. And I would imagine it would be very healing because instead of rejecting that thing, you're now able to understand that thing. And, and you said so beautifully before is like, find the wisdom that's available within you know, maybe the previous generations would be able to offer from their own pain and their own suffering. Absolutely. Because there's so much there, right? You know, there's also like how much was modeled around how to, you know, um, just stand firm, you know, despite there being, you know, utter chaos in, in your life, right? And what was learned there as well, right? And so within that narrative tree, there's also room that I leave for what were some of the ways in which resilience was modeled, you know, what were some of the ways in which love was modeled, what were some, and all of the things that were also a part of the general socialization within that home and are also pertinent things to to hold on to. And then as you explore that as part of the healing, then to sort of look at the family tree and, and assess what did we always wait for them to do, or what did we hope for, or what did we hope for ourselves? And like, how do we begin to bring an end to that inherited experience? So parts of it have to do, you know, with kind of going back a little bit into those holistic practices. And part of it have to do with being able to actually heal through the narrative itself. So like if we think about trauma therapy per se, right? Like a lot of the trauma therapies, a common, common thread you'll find through all of them is that people are retelling their stories and shifting away from avoidance factors, which are one of the more prominent factors of, you know, trauma overall, but PTSD namely. And, and so we're, we're doing a bit of the work around that where there is some exposure, right, to, to the experiences of trauma through the lineage. And then also there, there are elements of how we start regulating the nervous system, knowing that a part of this is biological, right, and that the nervous system is like literally in unrest. We're also like regulating the nervous system through practices that are, you know, just seeing kind of, you know, throughout our practices, unconventional. We're humming, right? We're doing sound bath meditations. We're like doing all the regulatory, like breath work, all of it. And we're bringing all of that in, in order to also reestablish a new way existing in our bodies, in addition to, you know, what feels more like the traditional trauma work. Which is that holistic approach of looking at the nervous system practices we can do to learn how to regulate, increasing that window of tolerance, which gosh, once you start to get that stuff down where you have a few more seconds, you know, between stimulus and response, I mean, that's where everything changes because all of a sudden you like have a second to breathe, you have a second, should, what is my choice in this moment? And what a beautiful opportunity. And, and I love how the pieces of the intergenerational stuff sort of like the image I have in my mind is you sort of see the U-Haul you were given or the truck that pulled up as you exited the portal. They're like, oh, take this truck too. And you're like, damn it. 
now you know that you got it instead of like your lifelong anxiety is maybe not yours. You know, which I think I think about that being such a beautiful, freeing piece of awareness. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I, you know, reference to this work as emotionally liberating, right? Because it it offers an opportunity for for us to really through that process of enlightenment and then through the process of caring for ourselves in a more holistic way that, you know, we're, we're able to offer ourselves like greater liberation than if we were to just attend to one dimension of trauma or one dimension of who we are. I love that. The multidimensional approach that is necessary for the fact that we are so multidimensional in, in every way that word can be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for offering us a window into this other way of seeing the world and and seeing our own world, seeing trauma, seeing just everything that we've inherited, both bad and good. And really just, I think, just in hearing this conversation, I think for you, the listener, there's an opportunity to to provide more context to why we do what we do and relationally, why the patterns we're in, why we react the way we react, why we find ourselves in I never want to be my like my parents. And then inevitably we end up exactly like them. And we're like, how, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for being here and, and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me and for being receptive to it. Oh, always, always open to any paradigm shifting, shattering perspective. <laughs> and for the people listening, where can they find more of you? Well, they can find me definitely on Instagram at Dr. Marielle Bouquet and on my website, you know, which is my name, just drmariellebouquet.com. Pretty much anything that, you know, is there as far as an offering or, you know, just added perspective can be found on those platforms. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to link all those in show notes. And thank you so much. Thank you. 